Wait for it. This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Every week on Hire, they run an auction where over a thousand tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and LA bid on JavaScript developers, providing them with the salary and equity up front. The average JavaScript developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary of over $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Adventures in Angular link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Adventures in Angular. Ready to master Angular? Oasis Digital offers Angular Bootcamp, a three-day in-person workshop class for individuals or teams. Bring us to your site or send developers to our classes in St. Louis or San Francisco, angularbootcamp.com. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code AngularAdventures, you'll get a $10 credit. This episode is sponsored by Telerik, the makers of Kendo UI. Kendo UI integrates seamlessly with both AngularJS 1.x and 2.0. It provides everything you need to integrate with AngularJS out-of-the-box, bindings, component configuration directives, template directives, form validation event handlers, and much more. And yet, Kendo UI tooling does not depend on AngularJS, so if you want to use it with Angular or not, that's totally up to you. You can check it out at kendoui.com. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 67 of the Adventures in Angular show. This week on our panel we have Lucas Rubelke. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we have a special guest, Jesse Warden. Hey, what's up? You want to introduce yourself? Yeah, so I'm Jesse Warden. I'm a technical architect manager at Accenture, and I do a lot of client-side JavaScript and struggling to do more Node. <laughs> That's usually from my uh, desire anyway. Very cool. Before we get going too far, I did forget to mention one thing, and that is is that we have a new topic suggestion system. So if you want to check it out, it's on GitHub, github.com slash devchattv slash AIA topics. Uh, we'll get you there, and if you have any recommendations, you can put them in there. You can also plus one other people's topic suggestions. So go check that out. So yeah, so we brought you in today to talk about consulting in Angular and some of the challenges that you see your clients facing. I wonder, is consulting in Angular much different from people who are full-time employees working on Angular apps? Or is it a different type of person that is contracting that out? Yeah, major difference. I think most people who are working on apps are traditionally software companies mm-hmm. where somebody in leadership has a desire to put the user first somehow, right? They want to make money, but they also realize that they have a product or some kind of service that relies on being good. And so they care about things like software quality and put it as a priority. And that just kind of, kind of naturally rolls down to those actually in the trenches. Consulting usually is for people who have software not as their core business or are just having challenges because it's, it's part of their business, but they just don't have the leadership in place for it or need extra help, right? They need somebody to get them unstuck or from that perspective. And so a lot of our time is, is kind of teaching 
you know, basic software stuff, basic DevOps, basic testing practices, basic UI design types of things like that, as well as trying to help people either get projects unstuck or just helping them out. One of the two. So it's, it's, it's a lot of uh, problem solving, a lot of people skills, not just actual software writing. And not only that, if I could jump in, a lot of it is something's already gone horribly wrong in a lot of cases and you are showing up and you have to very quickly figure out the context. Whereas a full-time employee, you are generally privy to a lot of the meetings and the dialogue that led up to decisions that kind of got them into that place. Whereas it's always interesting as a contractor, you show up and it's like, this thing is totally off the rails and we need to fix this as soon as possible. And you have to try to kind of put the pieces together and like figure out, you know, what actually happened without, you know, any of the context that led up to it. Yeah. Some of my old jobs were like that. Once I, uh, started running my own firm and having at least like three or four people to claim that I was a reasonably sized company, some of the projects we get, they weren't necessarily greenfield, but we could at least dictate some of the stuff for the front end. So we weren't allowed to really mess with the back end. We weren't allowed to change, you know, API layers, but at least we could be part of the solution, not part of the problem, right? But I've definitely been in those kind of projects where you said like, you come into some third party, two weeks to figure it out, right? And you try your best to get up to speed and help recommend things. And they're not really receptive to listening to things if it's your first week there, right? So you have to prove yourself by fixing bugs to earn the trust to make the recommendations. So that's, yeah, it's definitely a very, very challenging thing when you walk into those kind of projects. But on the other hand, because you're a third party, right? Sometimes you can get away with saying things that an employee couldn't say. You know what I mean? Because it's like, look, if you're not my company, you're just a client. I'm trying to help you. And if you don't want to take my advice, that's cool. I just, I've, based on my experiences, this is what I've seen and my suggestions are here. And if you don't take them, like, I really don't care. Right. Like, I just want to make you to win. So sometimes you get away with saying that where as an employee, it's kind of hard to do that. Yep. So what are kind of the cliffs that you're pointing out? It's like danger that way. Don't do that. I think the biggest problem is the same problem I've seen in every single software project. And that is just that most of them, if you look at like the rating system, right, where you have like level five through level one, where level one is cowboy coding, like design agencies who never pay their technical debt, all the way up to level five and six, the companies that launch like NASA rockets and the Challenger system and all that kind of stuff who have really, really hardcore quality programs. A lot of companies are still around the two and three where they just don't have any signs of DevOps or anything like that. They don't really care or understand that, you know, you have to have quality first. You have to automate it so developers will do it. That's one problem. Uh, the second is, is that front end is very new for people. Even in the flash and flex days, the Java developers loved us because we could, you know, there's 30 of them, right? And one of us. So they can handle all the API layer and we could orchestrate everything. And it took a lot of burden off them. But now, you're getting a lot of these hybrids where the Java developers will do some of the front end or some of the C-sharp guys, and they don't have any UI background, right? They're not used to... These are the kind of people that ask you to how to do red-black trees, like on interview questions. Mm -hmm. When you ask them to do an infinitely scrolling list, they go, why is that relevant? And you, it's like, what do you mean, <laughs> why, is, why is it relevant? Like, that's what I do all day. I don't reverse black red trees or whatever they're called. So that's, that's problem number two. And then problem number three is... I've, I've never fixed this, but is struggling to involve the user, even if you have a really good lean engineering DevOps process and trying to get designers vision actually implemented in the UI and have them in this feedback loop. Traditionally, that's not there. And so those three are just really hard to fix, to, you know, advise on, to get a system around, customize for the company, blah, blah, blah. So, 
So I have a question um, with a bit of an anecdotal backstory to lead up to this. So, Jesse, I think we've known each other for maybe seven, eight years, if I'm not mistaken. And we first actually met when I was learning Flex for the first time and making that transition from ActionScript to Flex. And I remember I said, like, look, here's $100. Just tell me if I'm putting my Flex project together correctly. And so I remember we spent a little bit on talking on the phone and and I kind of got straightened out. But it was really interesting that, you know, Flash and Flex went through this kind of really painful growth period where it's like, okay, it's time to grow up into a platform. And so we're going to go from, you know, ActionScript 1, which is very similar to ES5, to ActionScript 2 and 3, which is, you know, had a little bit more, you know, classical sugar on top of it. Well, now we're almost in the same spot again, where JavaScript is going from ES5 to ES6, and even more so with TypeScript, where, you know, now with the super, super set, you have things like inheritance, or rather interfaces, you know, typing in these different things where just even last week I was showing some Java developers Angular 2 with TypeScript and they're like, oh, this makes so much more sense than, you know, regular JavaScript and Angular 1X. And so I'd love to hear kind of your opinion about how kind of these cycles that you've seen from, you know, ActionScript 1 to 2 and 3 to now where we are with Angular 1 going into Angular 2 with ES6 or TypeScript. That's a... It's a gigantic question. Part of the reason I disappeared for three years with Corona and a cave and alcohol was because I was hoping that by the time I came out, you know, everyone would assume that TypeScript was the way forward. And it wasn't. It took like three to four years for it not only to be relevant, but to basically make Google Dart look old, right? So that's pretty impressive they did that. But there seems to be like three kind of camps in JavaScript, which is interesting. We we had two in the Flash world, right? We'd have Flash designers and developers and agencies. And then we had those using Flex, right? For the most part, that was the stereotype. And it was accurate. If you're doing apps, large systems for enterprises, you're using that. And if you're doing design or really short deadlines, you don't really care about best practices because you don't, you know, you're being creative, right? You don't have any technical debt. You never paid off. That was Flash. Where JavaScript, there's this third realm of functional people who are, you know, very into React and Flux and they, they seem like very alienated by TypeScript. We have a small user group in Richmond, so it's not really indicated with the industry. But even there, there was still some functional people who thought Angular looked extremely complicated. And not all of them were from a agency background, right? So there, I, it's interesting that there's three, right? For people who want to do JavaScript from the agency world, there's room for them to just use something like jQuery or Polymer or React and call it a day. And then there's room for the functional people like Netflix, where they're doing Flux and RxJS and Falcon and all those things from a functional perspective to build apps, right? As well as people like me who work with traditional C-sharp .NET developers who are used to OOP, right? And we Angular and TypeScript feels right at home for us, right? Doing declarative, doing components. So I, I think it's it's interesting that it has somewhat of the same parallel, but... There are thousands of more people. The build systems are insanely better. The tooling is insanely better. There's tons more options. And so now that I have context of like, you know, eight years, right, of watching it change, I think uh, we're in a much better place than we were back in the day, right, with Flex and all that stuff. The runtime's not so great in terms of views and stuff, the way I want to compose UIs. But I think from a developer's perspective, the tooling is, is immensely better. So... But, you know, from TypeScript, from the build systems to the unit test frameworks to the packaging systems and to the just thousands of people online who basically produces stuff for free, right? That's just really nice. We didn't have that back in our day, I think, because of the size of our community, really. And so in these kind of corporate settings, what has been your experience in terms of kind of like what's in the pipeline and with Angular 2 and, and TypeScript? Have, have Well, that's complicated. So I, I've worked for 
three different clients, at least well, within Accenture, that I would consider like a reasonable indication of who their clientele is, right? And they're very similar to what I did for freelance, but they're just a little bit bigger in terms of how much money's on the table, right? So same type of clients, just bigger projects. And each one was was different in terms of the enterprise context. One was a bank that was very design heavy. They liked branding. They got it. They hired designers who were intimate with SaaS and less. They believed in designer developer workflows. They believed in, you know, prototyping and trying to mash waterfall and agile together to get something out. Right. And so from that perspective, it wasn't a matter of selling. It was more about getting a workflow with developers who don't care about design involved in that, right? Or shielded from that, which is cool. That's the same problem, you know, Flash and Flex developers. So that was one challenge, which is a good challenge, right? Getting the workflow down pat. The second client was more of a a media client. So they were a little bit easier from a perspective of working with the tooling. But I think the issue we had was that we're training up a lot of different people who don't have this background. They don't know why Angular double binding can be bad. They don't understand about you know, state machines, like even the basics of programming, they're trying to do that. And then number three is the other client, they don't have any view representation at all, right? And they don't understand the ecosystem. So trying to teach them like, you know, things have changed from the 90s. You know, we don't use SVN and some of these old things anymore. Like the world's moved on. And so trying to even teach them the basics and say that this has nothing to do with JavaScript, we're just part of this larger ecosystem. It's been a lot of education, a lot of evangelism and things like that. And trying to put it in an objective way, Right. Rather than saying it's cool. Well, how does, you know, how is Git cooler than SVN? Can you be more specific? Right. Or trying to quantify that the world has moved on. Like, can you give me a factual, you know, statement of that? Can you give me a Gartner white paper that clearly says that? Like, that's been very difficult to quantify that in a quantitative way rather than, just, you know, feel good stuff you read on the internet. Right. So trying, I, I think each one of those clients is that, you know, either a workflow problem, integrated designers, a teaching problem, trying to bring new people up to speed and make sure they don't hurt themselves. Or they have a significant DevOps problem with trying to get general continuous integration and continuous delivery up and running with on-site hardware that's awful. I think those are the three things that have been really, really hard. And Angular is like just one small part of that. That's actually funny you should mention that. Last week I was on-site for an assessment for some training. And it's like, okay, we're going to do Angular training, but let me just spend two days meeting the team and just seeing what's going on. And then we'll come up with the best course of action from there. And I spent probably 90% of my time actually talking about agile and workflow and how to get designers to work with developers and straightening that out. And like you said, Angular was just such a small part of like those discussions that, you know, a lot of times, at least with, you know, large kind of entrenched corporate developers, there's just an entire mindset shift that has to happen first, which I think they're wrestling with that on top of trying to actually you know, take a traditionally like C-sharp or Java developer and move them to the front end and, and then teach them, you know, this new wild thing called front end development. Yeah, half of it's that. The other half is trying to find the passion. <laughs> a lot of them are, like you were talking about before, negative situations. Some of them are just not as passionate about this, I think, because a lot of the companies don't have career paths for developers. So eventually those, you know, after five years go by and a product's matured, those developers either move on to other companies or move out into positions where they get away from technology. And for some, 
career paths, it's fine. People want to move up. They want to move out of software development into sales or management. But a lot of us who want to remain techies for life, there's only a few companies that encourage that culture and want to retain that talent and magnify it for leadership regions. And so a lot of the companies I go to don't have that in place. So like 10 years from now, you know, if Johnny starts as a coder out of college and he wants to continue to be a coder, what is his career path? Most companies can't answer that. Right. They assume Facebook and Google, you know, will take these kids and everyone's going to move to California. And that's just not sustainable. Right. Some people want to live on the East Coast and work at a company where they can positively impact the organization. Some developers do it. Right. But they only do it for companies that appreciate what they have to offer. Right. So a lot of these managers that, you know, they ask you, why do you want a developer in a room with business people writing user stories? And I'm, I'm just like. All right, hold on. I think the bar's still open. Let me go drink. <laughs> I'll come back. And then we can talk about why that was the most ridiculous question ever, right? It's very, very frustrating to, uh, you know, start with process. When I, ho- I was, I was hoping we were going to go there and code, right? And I would do some Angular and teach them some DevOps. And instead, my job is, you know, trying to explain basic agile, you know, lean engineering processes with DevOps and CICD, right? It's just really basic stuff. The other worst thing. It's the same problem that I had with Ruby on Rails is that some people don't know the fundamentals. There's this uh, really horrible expectation from C-sharp and job developers who've been in quote-unquote web development, right, for years, that when we, we actually have internal training programs at Accenture, and a lot of them say they know JavaScript. And when I ask them basics about global variables or functions or closures or scope or difference between prototype and a closure or, you know, dealing with encapsulation and all that stuff, they have no idea what I'm talking about. And so... A lot of times we have to, you know, teach them Ruby before we teach them Rails, right? In this case, I have to teach them JavaScript before we teach them the ecosystem, which is a lot of work because they have a style of thinking, which I agree with, right? I came from an influenced Java background. But on the other hand, you need to give them the options and say, look, if you want to do it from a more functional way, here's your options, right? You know, that's that's hard because there are so many options for JavaScript. It's not, you know, dictated. I mean, even Ang- Angular 2 is like giving us four bloody language offerings. Like that's that's not helpful. I know they think it's cool, but it's not it's not helpful. I second that motion. Well, even to that point, you know, it's funny with Angular that it actually abstracts out a lot of the bad parts. Um, so, you know, by having like a dollar scope, you don't have to necessarily think of, you know, basically like JavaScript scope and it being leaky. It kind of solves that problem for you. And so there's been a few times where I went back to vanilla JavaScript and it's like, oh, right. This, like, this actually leaks or like this is no longer accessible. Whereas, you know, scope in Angular, it, that dollar scope is very good at actually preserving context and kind of guessing what it is, especially for like an NG repeat and everything. So it'll actually establish like that scope and that context for you. And so, you know, all you do is Angular, it's really easy to not understand how scope and the you know, closures and, and these different things actually work under the hood. I did a presentation last night about it and... There's a lot of things to love about Angular 2. It's a lot simpler in terms of like build components, right? There's no such thing as in terms of factors and services and all that. Like you can basically just make classes, right? So a lot of this go away. But even in ES6, if you don't follow basic, you know, variable hoisting, like you're still going to have scope problems. So there's still, unless somebody establishes best practices, right? Like John did, John Papa did with his uh, style guide. Like unless you have some kind of included best practices, on the Angular.io website, that's not going to percolate down to the general populace and they're going to start bad, right? Or if we have a Yeoman generator to handle that with some of the basic, you know, either Dart or TypeScript or ES6, unless that's started from day one and kind of ingrained in the Angular community, like this is how we should do things, then I think some of those problems still stick around. 
just based on what I've seen from some of the sick stuff, where the people are still using this and expecting it to work. Right. Well, thankfully, John Papa is working on a updated Angular 2 version of his precious, precious style guide. So <laughs> Good, good. Yeah. Gotta love that. We had an IBM guy talk to our uh, internal architect conference. We had, like, this internal architect conference, and you have to be, like, certified by Accenture to be invited. And I was invited because I was speaking, so I'm not certified yet. But it was interesting they had this guy from IBM basically talk about the biggest challenge with companies right now is you can't out-innovate. And I, I maybe get the numbers wrong, but he said, you know, the Oracle Conference in the United States of America had, like, I don't know, 6,000 attendees or something. The same year, the OpenStack in Spain had, like, 22,000, right? And he's trying to get the point across that all this open source is out-innovating and out-developing and out, you know, this is what people use, right? And so part of our, our shtick for business is basically picking a stack that we believe in and promoting it, right? However, like there's still a lot of people who still use Backbone for, you know, backward support reasons, things like that. There's still people who use React just because that's what they want to use. And so we have to adjust the stack for that. And I think John Papa's um, style guide is a very integral part of that because when you say use the stack, they're like, well, how do we actually code it? And unless you have those, you know, white paper guidelines like we had in Flex on how to do that, Google has their JavaScript ones on white paper and how they suggest that. I think we need something a little more official. Like it, it needs, John Papa's cool, but it needs to be like, ordained by Google and cited very clearly, right? Otherwise, you're just going to have people doing everything differently, which is, you know, it's okay in, in the four different languages, but it's not okay if you're going to start with ES6, right, which is the safest option. Wow, that was deep. And yes, John Papa is very, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I'm making fun of him. He's not here. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> make fun of him on Twitter. Let's see if he shows up. Yeah. So I feel like I've been yakking and dominating the show. Chuck, Aaron, would you guys like to to jump in and, and take a shot at this? I mean, Jesse's just unshakable, man. He's just stone-cold killer. I mean, I can chime in a little bit. I've talked to a few clients lately who, uh, when I bring up Angular, they're a little bit scared still of the whole Angular 1, Angular 2 dichotomy. And, well, what if we start with Angular 1 and then... You know, we're, we're in Angular 2, and even though I explained to him that since Angular 2 isn't out, Angular 1 isn't outdated technology, they still don't buy in just from the fact that they feel like Angular 2 is right on the doorstep and they don't want to fall behind immediately when it comes out. I think Angular is still your best bet for that. Like, when you look at, like, because a lot of people are already on Angular 1 and they're like, well, should we ditch Angular and go to something else? I don't think you should because, like, if you want to switch to some other framework, you're going to have to write all these bridges manually to like bind your your old Angular to the new framework because you're not going to be able to convert your entire app from Angular 1 to this new thing, right? You're only going to be able to do the new pieces. But with Angular 2, they're going to have it to where Angular 1 can run inside of it and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I think that your conversion story for those kind of people is where you sell them and say Ang the Angular team is actually going to provide those bindings and those bridges so that the two can coexist and they're going to give you a migration path that you wouldn't get with any other framework. So it's actually a pretty sweet yeah. deal that they're offering. Yeah, I, I have explained that to people and some people will buy into that, but others because it's consulting as opposed to having somebody on site that's going to work on your crap anyway they see that as more hours or more time or more cost that they're going to have to put into the project rather than just waiting or adopting something else that theoretically won't change in the meantime, which I also explained to them. Everything's kind of moving and moving at breakneck speed in the JavaScript space. So there's no guarantee that by going to React or Ember or Knockout or something else that you're not going to have exactly the same issue. 
Yeah, so far the only sure bet is JavaScript and Node for a build system. That's it. Yeah. Everything else is completely up for grabs. Well, and even then, which JavaScript? I mean, just, just regular right. ES5, regular ES5. Right, but for how long? I mean, eventually Forever. ES6, ES7, ES 2015, 2016, whatever. Anyway, you know, those are eventually going to become the new standard and they're going to drop backward compatibility for the older versions of JavaScript, don't you think? Well, no, but I mean, to give you context, like Lucas can totally attest to this. Some of the work that I did back in like the late 90s and early 2000s, you cannot see. Even if it's not behind a firewall, it's gone. There's no way for you to physically see it. However, Space Jam and the first website ever created on the internet still work in Chrome, Safari, Firefox, and Opera, and on my phone, right? And that's kind of a testament to web standards, okay. as much as I make fun of them and things like that. And it's, I just retweeted actually that Dalton guy that works on Lodash. Like he's, he's trying to, he's struggling. You know, for all the 20 year olds say, I don't need this now because, you know, Ray for each is already available in the browser natively. I don't need Lodash, right? It's good. I'm done. And, and he's explaining like, it's not that simple, right? Even with ES6 and system JS and all these bridges, the stuff you wrote years ago is still going to work. And, you know, you don't have to worry about it. But if you're like, we're telling our clients, if you want better features, yeah, they're definitely out there. But yeah, like Aaron was saying, the bridge is not yeah. that bad. It's just, it's all, it depends on what you've already built. Yeah. And so the second that is I'm starting a new project with a client and their timeline is like 2016 and they're Java developers. So once we started kind of talking about options and I said, well, Angular 2 and TypeScript, you know, interfaces, typing, et cetera, and their eyes lit up and they said, you know what? That timeline actually works for us. Whereas with another client is, you know, they actually have to have something done in the next couple months. And so we made the decision to go with ES6 and Angular 1X, but that provides a sane kind of upgrade path down the road because it is in an Angular 2 style. Yeah, in the past, like we would have six months, you know, what, what update cycles for Flash Player and we would like plan for new features. Now, like we can use features that aren't even out yet and have all these transpilers and all these other build systems work them in and we can get rid of them over time, right? And, and somewhat offload to the native browser functionality. And some of these browsers now have one month transition cycles to updates. So a lot of those, you know, planning for release cycles can work. However, what we try to pitch is that we should have weekly release cycles, right? Not like 2016. So we should be able to not necessarily change our architecture from Angular 1 to 2, but we should be able to deliver something now, right? And if we want to change it later, we should be able to. But I think Based on all the stuff I've seen in Angular 2, most of the stuff that I've tested works pretty well. So I don't see why we couldn't start now if you had that long of a, you know, deadline. So one other thing that I run into a lot as a consultant myself are maintenance issues. So either I wind up taking over maintenance for somebody else's deal, or I write something and then they decide that they want to go with somebody that's lower cost, that's willing to take on a project only a few hours a month to do the maintenance. And the way I write Angular isn't always the way that other people write Angular. You know, similar for Rails or whatever else I'm using in the project. Or yep. CSS, the way I arrange things isn't the way that other people arrange things. How do you optimize for that with Angular? Well, I work for Accenture, and part of our business model is low-cost offshore development. So we have onshore resources on the same time zone. We have offshore resources and, you know, all over the world for different geographies. So a lot of that cost is factored in to whatever we're developing, right? We, we know that we're going to have maintenance and some of it's going to be the client, 
right? On-site employees who kind of help mm-hmm. dictate the direction, the architecture that they're comfortable with. But part of the RFP process is putting together a deal that you know factors that into play, right? So we can provide resources that know JavaScript, right? That write the way that we want to, can use our architecture, our DevOps, our generators, you know, whatever best practices we suggest they'll follow. But they're not as expensive as manager consultants who live in America, right? So that's part of the shtick I have. Where I was previously consulting, I don't know how to fix that. Usually I would do the best I could to make sure that I provided ample documentation. I made sure the build was working. I provided, you know, known as much logs as possible. So if something went wrong that was known, a new developer would understand what the context was, right? From exceptions or logging things. I don't know if that helped, but I never had clients get mad <laughs> and call me for help, right? I never figured out how to solve that when I was, you know, a smaller consulting firm. Uh, yeah. With the larger one, we just provide cheap resources for it. So yeah. And where I usually come in with a lot of this is uh, I'll follow some particular style guide, you know, so I'll do John Papa's style guide on Angular One apps. And I will do, there are a few Ruby on Rails style guides when I'm doing Rails. And I'll document the way that I'm arranging my SAS or SCSS or CSS or however I'm managing all that. Less, whatever, you know, bootstrap, et cetera, et cetera. And that way people know, okay, it'll all follow this general format. And then as far as the rest of it goes, I mean, just good naming, good documentation, letting people know where stuff's at. And then, yeah, I really like the idea of, you know, kind of hammering out, I ran into this issue and I solved it this way. One other thing that I've done is I've actually put issue numbers and issue explanations into my Git messages and then let people know that that's a good place to look as well. And that way when they're, they can just look in their Git log and then find that particular commit and then they can go look in GitHub or whatever if that's more convenient and actually see what the code changes were that fixed the issue. That's a good idea. I, most of the source control stuff I've, I've been with has usually been a mess. So I've, I've only been on two <laughs> clients that have actually had like Git and only one of them had GitHub Enterprise. A lot of them had some old version of Gatorius or something. It was just really gross. Um, and not everyone on the team was adept at using like command line. So the other problem too is the leadership in place when I leave is always in question, right? If, mm-hmm. if that company has good tech leadership, I really don't have to do a lot because I know. That's true. That you know what I mean? Like, I don't have to worry as long as they do X, Y, and Z. Whereas some of the clients who are going to have to maintain this for years, they have an expectation that one or two developers who like, you know, does everything, right? The jack of all trades, who's been there forever. That I have to invest more work because they are kind of expected to handle everything. And then the contract clients, the ones who I built products for, I've been lucky in that most of those were only like three to four month projects, right? So the projects weren't that big. They only had one to two developers. The code bases were not that complex. So I didn't have to worry so much about those exploding, right? And if it did, it was something really small that I had no problem doing a change order for, right? Like a really cool contract to say, hey, it's a couple hours, no problem, right? Or like my father did, I would bake that into the original statement of work and say, look, you get 10 hours to 20 hours of my time over the next three years, right? For support Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yep. And hardly ever did they ever use that, but they like to know that, you know, I drop everything I would do on a Sunday to help them if they had a bug, right? So Yeah, my contracts usually look a little bit different than that rather than promising a certain number of hours. If I can, I contract to the outcome. So you will have a system that does X, Y, and Z and, you know, works to this level of reliability. And then when you sign off that is done, then is done. But at the same time, the understanding was that I contracted to give them that outcome. So if there is a critical bug that comes in later that they find, then, you know, I feel like under my contract, you know, I'm going to jump in and 
make that right because otherwise I'm not delivering on what I promised in the contract in the first place. And then I just collect a bid and they don't pay any more money. I would never do that. You must have really nice clients. Mine are are brutal. Part of the reasons I I went to Accenture is I was just so exhausted from eight years of collections and, you know, struggles dealing with some of the larger endeavors. Um, We were very brutal on statement of work being in our favor, right? And even then, I never had a client nickel and dime me about that kind of stuff. Like they were, like I said, I would put 20 hours and wouldn't use it. But I've never seen, and maybe this is just my paranoia, I've never been able to deliver exactly what you know, to that level of quality, because there's always bugs. There's always a change request in the middle that, you know, they say, well, it's out of scope, but this is what we want. I'm like, okay, I'll just do it rather than change the contract six months into the project. Right. Yeah. But my deal is, is that I would much rather collect up front because that solves all the collection issues. Tell them that I'm going to deliver whatever I'm going to deliver. And then if it turns out that, yeah, the discovery process that we went through initially didn't uncover something, or as we built it, we found that we needed something else, then yeah, we just renegotiate the contract. And then they pay the difference up front, and then they just get what they want. And then it's not this, you know, oh my goodness, you know, we got this half done and we're out of money or, you know, any weird stuff like that. And I don't have to log all my hours and nitpick over all that crap. I just get in, I get the problem solved, I make them happy, and then I leave. Well, next time I, uh, I get tired of working W-2 and I go back to consult, and I'll make sure you're my uh, my sales guy. <laughs> <laughs> you, can, you can write on my contracts and be my client delivery lead. It, it is a lot of work to do it that way. And for the larger clients, I would actually tell them, look, I'm selling you a discovery document and they would actually pay me for the upfront discovery work. But most contracts weren't large enough to really merit that. We just spend a day or two, we'd hash it out, make sure that all the questions got answered and then we then I'd do a bid. And yeah, the first few you do that on, you kind of lose your shirt because you realize that you didn't ask enough of the certain types of questions, but after a while you figure all that stuff out. I have a whole podcast that I talk to people about this on. So uh yeah, if you're interested in freelancing, go check out the freelancer show. Um, we talk about all, a lot of this stuff on a regular basis. So that was, that was part of my desire for Accenture. They said, why do you want to work here? And I said, well, do you guys have salespeople? And they said, yes. I'm like, okay. Do you have collections people? And they said, yeah. I'm like, cool. That's why I want to work for Accenture. And they thought I was joking or being uncomfortable. Like, don't you want to code? Don't you want to work with good people? I'm like, well, yeah, it's a given. I just, I'm tired of doing contracts and I'm tired of doing collections and I'm tired of doing sales on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And they just, you know, once I talked to a, a fellow consultant who worked there, like he knew exactly what I was talking about, right? Yep. Part of the, the job interview problems I had is people who traditionally deliver software forget that there's a business aspect to it. There's a people aspect yep. to it. And it's a lot of work. Those hours are like real hours doing real work that's not related to code. It's just been nice to have like all those things you said actually in a contract. Like now mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's no stress, right? I can actually right. like do my work and not stress about it. Yeah, I also have to point out, though, that I have other things that bring me money, like the online conferences, and I get a little bit off of the sponsorships. And so I'm a little bit, I can afford to be a little pickier. So if they're not a really good fit for that type of a bid, then I won't take the contract. Right. So it's not like I have to suffer through this guy to pay my mortgage. I'll do it. Right. 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 <laughs> I got gotcha. you. Frosty, do you have any questions about consulting in Angular? No. Sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> um, I work on a humongous app. So I end up working with a couple guys. We kind of consult internally, but I've never tried to do what you guys are doing. I Well, I did it one time, but and it was only like two days. So I don't know how you guys do it full time. It sounds really intense. It's definitely a different type of work. And 
you have to be really careful to not wind up owning your job, which is what it sounds like Jesse did to a certain degree. Because if you just own a job where you have to do all the parts you don't like and all the parts you do like, then a lot of times it's not worth it. Even if you make more money or you feel like you have a little bit more flexibility on your schedule, you get some of that, but you lose some of that too. Yeah, I think the career desire for consulting was like, once you've built enough apps, there's only like two paths, as far as I knew, two paths left. You can either go the startup route, right? Mm -hmm. And wear a bunch of different hats and say, look, I've done this so many times. Not only can I do it from scratch, but I can do it for something I don't know. And I can do it while doing something else like management or marketing or talking to investors or whatever that is. Right. And that's very, very compelling for some people who are so sick of being dictated architecture and dictating a technology stack they don't want to use. Right. Mm -hmm. Or they just have a desire. Right. So that's one path. The other path is consulting, where you already know how to do stuff, so you can help people who know a really specific business, but they don't know how to do what you say, you know, from a best practice perspective. Or you have a team that's off track, and you can just help them a little bit, right? It's it's a very little investment of your time, but it's all about people, yep. right? And as an extrovert, I love working with devs, not so much code, right? I love <laughs> yeah, code with people. So that's why John, when I when I worked with him briefly, we never got anything done because I would just talk to him a lot, so. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, the other thing that I hear a lot, and it's kind of specialized consulting, is is specifically training. And so, you know, (laughs) you have people that make courses or other info products that are training products, or they wind up going on site, usually for larger companies, and saying, here's how you solve your problem with whatever technology stack I'm an expert in. And then there are the people out there that really just figure it all out. They don't mind the marketing. They get a system in place where they don't have to do a whole lot of the uncomfortable things like collections and salary, or not salary, but rate negotiations and things like that. That or that stuff just doesn't bug them. And then they get to work on the technology they think is cool. Yeah, the only, the only person I met that did that was Shafiq Kazoon. He was like originally created one of the first component frameworks in Flash. And then he eventually created his own. He worked with a couple of startups. And he was one of those CEO guys that could like negotiate rates and it just, he didn't have a heart attack, right? Mm-hmm. He wasn't stressed. It was, you know, not a big deal for him, but he was so intelligent. He still understood coding, right? So he could switch gears where right. he, he would talk to a developer and then he'd go, all right. So basically this contract's wrong and you're asking too much money. Like did the ability to switch gears like that is, is for me is fascinating. Just his personality type was great. Plus I take everything personally, right? Cause I really mm-hmm. care a lot. I, the people I've seen who've done that are just very calm, collected, not emotional. Don't take it personally. Don't sweat the small stuff. And I, I haven't figured that out yet. <laughs> yeah, so. I can tell you that both Eric Davis and Curtis McHale, who have been on the Freelancer Show panels for quite a while, neither are on right now. Eric, I think, is going to come back here pretty soon. But anyway, the way both of them work, actually, is that they have basically set rates and they negotiate that. And if you can't pay the rate, then you're not a good fit. And I'm real sorry. So it's not personal. If you don't pay, then they don't do any more work for you, and that's just the way it is. It's not personal. They basically have a system, and if you don't fit into the system, then you're not my client. And it's not personal. It's just that's the way I work. That's what makes me comfortable, and it doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make me wrong. It just makes it so that I can get the work done in the way that I like to do it. That worked out really well for me, like those two things. I mean, I didn't probably do them as well, but I definitely said, like, I don't negotiate on a rate. I try yeah. to be the most expensive person, period. And, you know, if you don't pay, it's cool. I'll just go do something else. Like, it's not personal. It's just, this is not a charity. But for the consulting stuff, like, I was always trying to grow, right? I wanted mm-hmm. to 
bring a bigger team to the table just because I wanted to do bigger things, right? I'm, I was tired of doing like staff fog or right. helping on stuck projects. I wanted to build something big and doing that consulting, you really have to always be selling, not just coding. And that yes. was very hard for me to like, all right, I've got to go learn Browserify because I got to fix the build because nothing works here, but I should probably be selling instead, right? Yep. And trying to like, okay, I've only got 80 hours this week. How much can I really do without getting exhausted? So, yep. Have you uh, read the E Myth Revisited? I read part of it. I think back when I first started looking for startups, like Joel Hooks and was kind of getting that stuff too. He he sent me a bunch of books, and I think that was one of them. And I read part of it, but I think I was it was right when Flash died. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm gonna go on page. <laughs> I'll come out in three years. <laughs> when it blows over, I'll read all these books and start a startup. But instead of going to California. We actually moved to Richmond, Virginia for family reasons. So I was just like, I'll just get a W-2 and recharge. Like, you know, health bars and video games? Mm -hmm. I'm I'm about 80% there. So I think it's when 90% is when I'll start picking up the books again. So I'll finish it. What's the good part? Where should I start? Because I don't read books from start to finish. So where should I start? This one, it kind of builds on itself in a particular way. You may want to... I'm about halfway through it. So I don't know. The first half... So I should start from the beginning. Okay. Yeah. But the essential bit is that there's the technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur in each of us. And most developers I know, they really fall under the technician. They want to get in and do the stuff. And that's the valuable part is doing the stuff. And so, yeah, so you recognize that the manager in you is saying, yeah, I probably should be selling so that I can eat next month too. But the technician in you is saying, yeah, but if I go learn Browserify, then I can solve this problem right now. Rather than looking at it and saying, I can go find somebody who understands Browserify and have them solve this problem right now, and then I can go sell and we can both eat this month and next month. Yeah, I, I was w- lucky to be with a team that had a lot better closers. Like I was really good from an evangelism yeah. marketing, but when it came to contract negotiation, some people, like you know, they they might say they don't they don't have the money, but they they have the money. They can mm-hmm. find the money. It's just a matter of they don't you know, want it enough. Right. And, and so you're just trying to figure out what's the fear, what's the trust issue. And I yeah. think, I just, I think in retrospect, most of the clients that I was dealing with were consulting from an angle of multiple vendors. And I just wasn't represented as a vendor. It was more of, I have a bunch of cheap friends, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Who are really smart. I can get them for low rates, but rather than being a partner, right? And so I, I think a lot of the, some of the stuff I read in that and some of the other marketing books were saying like, if you don't approach it as we're a team and, a, a, you know, we're here for you to like work together. It's just me in the trenches. Like Jesse's really busy and delivers, but you know, what else does he bring to the table himself? Right. That's not really valuable. So. Yeah. There are a lot of different ways that I've seen it presented. Honestly, I think you have to figure out what works for you and works for the people that you're trying to get in front of and get to hire you. Whoever pays insane amounts per hour. That was, that used to be the goal. Yeah. Not but even. that's, yeah, but that's not specific enough to know. You know, who should I be targeting so that I can get in front of them and have a good chance of closing and solving their problem, making them happy and getting referrals? We tried that with like what it was dashboards. We had like, um, uh huh, like a dashboard, right? And so we'd say, look, we can wire a bunch of orchestrated data together on the client side. And so you can get insights to, to big data. And we had some half of the charts were just static, like, you know, just drag and drop. There wasn't anything sophisticated, but the other ones was we put them together in such a way that it was architected where the job developers could easily in the enterprise drop it in, sell it to their manager. And then they call us when they struggle to get it building larger than, you know, a couple of days, right? So we got a lot of referrals from that. And those financial clients and the insurance clients are great because, you know, had tons of money. They were really relaxed in terms of like delivery and things like that because they just, they were used, I guess, to like quarterly 
releases, which is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Quarterly releases. And the RFPs would take like two months, but once they were signed, like it wasn't a big deal, right? We could go there, we could build time and materials and it wasn't a big deal, but that was only 50%, right? The other clients, like I don't, you know, they were just random. They would find, you know, like you're saying on conferences and stuff, they would find it from blog posts or Twitters or referrals. And so I never really got a steady type of client beyond the financials from the yeah. dashboard. And see, what you should have done is you should have told everybody else no and then doubled down on the insurance and financial clients. Yeah, it's, it's maybe I should. It's my attention span. Yeah. I'm working at stuff longer than six months. I'm like, all right, dude. Like, yeah. No, I, I get that. But Ugh. but yeah, because then you know how to speak to the financial clients. You know how to speak to the insurance companies. You know what their concerns are because they're all pretty similar. And you can address a lot of that stuff specifically and not go through sales cycles and trying to figure out why the conference or whatever else isn't biting on what gets your other clients really excited. You're so right. I mean, I remember some of the sales calls progressively were more and more like shorter because they're like, what about like dealing with the vertical blah? And we're just like, well, yeah, it's easy to do this. Like we did that on two clients. So they just knew you've done it so many times yep. that there's like, all right, we'll, we'll send the RFP signed over tomorrow. It's like, yay. Like that was the five minute sales call. Right? Yep. They used to be hours, right? Trying to drill down with multiple teams, trying to trust you. And once you did like two or three, they didn't care. They knew yep. what you knew what you're doing. So yeah, bigger fish, smaller barrel. All right. Well, I think we're getting close to the end of the time that we allotted for this. Anything else that we should talk about on this front before we get into picks? I'm not sure I'm a guest. Whatever you gentlemen <laughs> want to talk about. <laughs> Anything else you want to ask, Frosty? No, man, I'm good. All right. Let's go ahead and do some picks then. Aaron, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I'll, I'll do two picks. I'm going to pick a book that I just recently read. It's called Marissa Mayer and the Fight to Save Yahoo. It was like super enlightening. I had no idea that Yahoo is the company that had the most possibility to be successful and like failed every single time. <laughs> and now Morris is trying to save it. It was really like mind boggling how many pass, how many opportunities they've, they, they've passed up. It was insane. So I'm going to pick that book. It's really good. It kind of leaves you cliffhanging in the current day where Morris is still trying to save it, but it's really good. And then uh, the other one I'll pick is snuggling with my kids because they're pretty awesome and being a dad's like the coolest part of life. So yeah, that's my two picks. Awesome. I'm going to, on Lucas' behalf, he picked Adam I.O. So you can, uh, you can listen to me and pretend I'm Lucas. But he says, this editor has knocked me off my feet. It is awesome. So I've heard great things about Adam as well. So yeah, if you're into Adam, check that out. Another related project that you may want to check out if you're into writing desktop apps and using JavaScript is Electron, and Electron is kind of the framework that Adam is built on. So uh, you can go check that out as well. I'm going to pick something very similar to what Aaron picked, and that is, uh, I guess I should tell a little story first, give it some context, but ultimately I'm going to pick having integrity, even for things that seem really, really dumb and really unimportant. My six-year-old... They give them little reward cards at, at the school, and then they can take that into the assistant director's office, and they can get a little reward from the assistant director. So she took her little card in, and the assistant director said, yeah, go pick a reward, and she grabbed the whole bag of rewards and brought them home. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we... Smart. At, at first, we, you know, we were like, okay, well, you know, take them back. And so she took them back and apologized and everything, and the next day we figured out that she had pulled an extra one out of the bag before she'd given them back. So I actually drove her to school, got out of the car, walked in. The assistant director used to be our neighbor, so I know her really well. Uh, worked with her in Cub Scouts and stuff, so it, you know, 
She knows us. She knows her kids. So uh, we're walking into the school, and she's standing there by the front door holding it open and greeting students as they go in. And so I look at my daughter, and, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, give her the toy and tell her what you did. And, you know, it was really interesting, and sometimes it's scary. But at the same time, I've just found that even having integrity, being honest, sticking to what's my values and what's important to me pays off so much in the long run. And it's so germane to this conversation about consulting. Because if you are a person of integrity and your clients can figure that out, your relationship goes so much more smoothly and everything just works out so much better for you. You'll get more referrals. Your relationships with your clients will be better. You'll get paid more and it'll all just go that much better for you. So I'm definitely going to pick that. The other thing I'm going to pick, and I mentioned it at the beginning of the show, is the the GitHub issues uh, setup that I put in there. It's based on the GitHub Ask Me Anythings that you see around there. But yeah, if you have a topic suggestion for us, something you want us to talk about, then go in there and put it in, make a suggestion. You can suggest guests or topics or both. So feel free to jump in there and let us know what you would like to hear about. Finally, I have been talking to a lot of people who listen to the shows, and I would like to talk to you. If you're new, I don't care. If you're old, I don't care. If you've been doing this for a while, I don't care. I want to talk to you anyway. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash 15 minutes and pick a time on my schedule, and we'll do a Skype call for 15 minutes. Uh, I've done this with a whole bunch of people. I've talked to a whole bunch of newbies. I've talked to a whole bunch of people who are transitioning from one technology to another, who are starting their own companies, who want to start freelancing, who want to start a podcast. You name it, I've probably talked to them about it, and I am just loving having these conversations with people. So if you think that I wouldn't want to talk to you, you're probably especially the person I want to talk to. So go and sign up for that. Jesse, what are your picks? Uh, really three. I've got two blog posts that I use is for, like, I guess 1% of my research. They talk about the DevOps from the NASA days of launching rockets and the ones that went wrong. So the European Ariane 5 and 4, uh, as well as the Mars Global Orbiter and some of the reasons to why they failed. Those are my first two. I use those as kind of a gateway to learn more about how NASA does DevOps and testing and things like that, both back in the 90s as well as today. And then my third pick is basically JSPM.io. I don't know if anybody's talked about JSPM at all, but it, it's been uh, something I've been looking at for trying to create what we have to recommend is a DevOps you know, cornerstone for Angular 2. And so I've been falling in love with all the libraries that make it up, like Ease Module Loader and System.js. So definitely JSPM. Io and all the, the CLI tools that go with it. Yeah, we had a conversation with Scott Allen about package management in Angular apps, and so we talked about JSPM and Webpack and a few others. So uh, definitely go check that out if you're interested in this stuff, because there were a lot of discussions about what the trade-offs are and why you might want to use one or the other. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for coming, Jesse. If people want to find out more about what you're working on or follow you on Twitter or have a conversation with you, what should they do? Uh, so my blog is jessewarden.com slash blog, and my Twitter handle is jesterxl. All right. Well, thank you again for coming, and we'll wrap this up and catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Do you want to have conversations with the Adventures in Angular crew and their guests? Do you want to support the show? Now you can. Go to adventuresinangular.com slash forum and sign up today. 